Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Morning, church family. This morning, I want to quote an old sage. And that sage, is na- his name is John Schisler, actually. He's right over here in the back. Um, but uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to him, and he was telling me about his Christian life. And uh, a lot of what he said, I thought, was profound, and it struck me. And then toward the end of what he had to say, um, he, he sort of concluded what he had to say with this, and it struck me. And, and I actually wrote it down so that I could remember. He said, he's not a soft God. He can be rough, but he's good. And see, that's the sort of... That struck me as a sort of conclusion of his his Christian life is that God can be rough, but he's good. And I agree with that because I have found that being a Christian isn't very easy. Now, now don't get me wrong, because the Lord has blessed me, okay? He's saved me. He's given me hope, and he's given me purpose. But at the same time, he disciplines me, and he pushes me. So whenever whenever I was a young boy, when I did something wrong, okay, and I saw my dad pulling off his belt, I knew that pain was soon to follow, okay? <laughs> And sometimes I felt like he was a bit too harsh. Like, if I could just, if I could just say what I thought as a boy, I'd be like, Dad, why you got to be so aggressive? You know, lighten up a little bit. But at times I felt like he was too harsh. But today I could look back at my childhood and observe that my dad was right in his discipline. And I trust that he had the best intentions, even though it was tough and hard and it, it hurt. <laughs> and it's often the same with the Lord. At times he disciplines me and it's tough. But in the same way that I could look back at my dad's intentions, I can look forward to the Lord's intentions. In Proverbs 3, it says, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline, and don't be upset when he corrects you, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So church, the Lord disciplines out of love, and his goal is to make us holy, just like him. And to do that, he can get rough, just like Mr. John observed. So let's thank the Lord for his discipline and for pushing us and for being hard on us and for making us into people who are set apart. You know, I have to imagine the sort of God that's the converse of this, the sort of God who doesn't discipline, and that would strike me as the sort of God who doesn't care. But God disciplines because he cares, and he pushes us because he wants us to be holy in the way that he is holy, and we can trust that he is good in his discipline. We can trust that he is good and right in his correction. So, Lord, let's, I mean, guys, let's put our, our trust and our hope in the Lord and know that he is good. So, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your discipline. Thank you so much for your correction. Lord, thank you for changing our behavior and changing our ways of thinking. Thank you so much for loving us enough to challenge us. Lord, thank you for your goodness in our lives and help us to trust that you are good no matter what our circumstances look like. Hey, smile at somebody real quick. And just say, glad you're here. I know you've already been doing that, but someone else. Pick somebody different this time. And isn't it, isn't it wonderful to be a part of the body of Christ where we can genuinely love one another and care for each other? Because there's a hostile world out there, and there's a hostile spiritual universe out there. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. And, um, you know, in Paul's world, as he writes the letter to Ephesus, if you know a little bit about the background of Ephesus, you know that... Uh, it was a hot spot for the worship of the goddess uh, Diana or Artemis, and uh, in that uh, there was a lot of spiritual conflict. And when Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus and preached the gospel there, um, God began to do some amazing things. So that the Bible says that 
uh, everyone throughout the whole continent of Asia, and we're not talking about Asia today, we're talking about Asia then, uh, Turkey, essentially, they, they knew the gospel. They knew the gospel, and they heard it because of, uh, because of Paul's preaching. And, and as a result of that, a lot of people began to bring their, their magic books and different things that were devoted to uh, magic and, and other kinds of worship, and they burned them. And you'll remember as well that because of the preaching of the gospel, the idol makers, the people who made the little icons or statues, they were beginning to go out of business because people were turning from idols to the living God. And so it was making tremendous progress, but it was doing it in a world of conflict. Paul uh, says it, I think, in one of the Corinthian letters. Maybe it's at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. I know, I know this for sure because it's about resurrection. He said, if there's no resurrection, why have I fought wild beasts at Ephesus? Okay? It was a conflict. There was a battle that was going on, and, and that was in Paul's world. And I don't think he shied away from the battle I think sometimes we like to take roads of least resistance and whatever is kind of easy working through and uh, hoping not to offend. I mean, we don't want to try to offend. We don't want to be the reason people are offended. We want if people are going to be offended because they're coming into uh, conflict with a confrontational gospel. Because the gospel calls for us to lay down our idols and to repent as rebels and turn back to the living God. Did you know that? It's not just easy grace and, and come just as you are and stay just as you are. It's uh, come and, and lay down and, and die to yourself. So it's, there's a little bit of a conflict in the gospel that we have to deal with. And, and that doesn't mean we have to be abrasive in presenting, but it means that, that if you go preaching the gospel, you're going to face a battle. You're going to face conflict against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and so that was true in Paul's world. That's true in our world, too. We've got all kinds of things that are coming down the pike right now that are making it not about the thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, the central thing that we're standing for is the righteousness of God and salvation found in Jesus Christ. The world wants to take it and make it about all these other peripheral things about why we shouldn't be Christians because they're narrow-minded and they're exclusive and they don't think that we should be practicing these kinds of sexual ethics or any kind of, they think that we should be practicing sexual ethics at all. And so there's offense that's taken there. But I want you to know that's not the main issue. The main issue is that we are at heart rebels against God. And that we need to turn back to him and receive the grace that he's freely given through Jesus. That's the main issue. And so we have to deal with all these arrows and attacks that are coming from different ways. And how should we respond to that kind of battle? What is it that we need to do in response to this kind of thing? I think there's a lot of uh, instruction in the scripture about how to deal with this. And, and if you think that your Christian life is about the American dream, I don't think you have the Bible right. It's not about the American dream. It's about being in a conflict in this life that we've chosen sides. We're, we're, we're dealing with kingdoms in conflict. Do you know that? It's not about getting the most money. It's not about having a lot of toys. It's not about just enjoying life. Sure, God wants you to, to have joy in life. Sure, he doesn't mind if you have toys as long as they don't get in the way. You, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and he doesn't mind you enjoying some of the benefits that come with being American. He doesn't mind that as long as it doesn't get in the way of the idea that we are living in a spiritual battle. We need to understand that. God has won uh, through Christ the victory in that battle, but the battle continues to wage on. And let me say this at the outset just so you, I don't uh, kind of get us off track from the beginning. 
there's a lot of stuff out there on spiritual warfare on the Christian bookstore shelves that are not worth your time. Okay? There's a lot. Okay? When it comes to the scripture, let's hear what it has to say. Are you with me? Okay. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. We won't start with children obey your parents. That's last week, Father's Day, right? Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And let me point out that finally is Paul taking uh, this letter down the final turn into the straightaway. And he's getting ready to come across the finish line in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel that comes, excuse me, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With, all, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Why does Paul say right there, I'm an ambassador in chains. He's in prison, right? At that time, he's in prison. He's writing uh, what's known as a series of letters known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. It's disputed about where Paul is, but I think the majority of scholars think that Paul is in some kind of prison cell in Rome. Others think maybe uh, he's at, in prison in Ephesus. Uh, I don't know that that's likely, but some do. Um, but he's writing from prison at this time, and so he recognizes that he's an ambassador in chains. And in one way, he's confined to one place, but the gospel is not confined. He continues to proclaim and promote the gospel. And there is some difficulty that comes along with that. And, and even as he proclaims from prison and in his letters and in his personal witness to whoever he, he may come into contact with there, uh, there are some challenges and potential fears that can rise up. And so as we talk about this, I want to mention the first thing uh, here that Paul talks about. He talks about preparation, that when it comes to the spiritual battle, there needs to be some kind of preparation that takes place prior to the battle. There is a battle on, and every responsible person has a personal responsibility to be clothed in the armor of God. Okay? So look at what it says here in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's not asking us to stand out there fighting these spiritual battles without any help. Okay? Some, fight, some folks think that we're going to win the Christian battle just by pure grit, right? That we're just tough enough to do it, and, and somehow we're going we're gonna to do this on our own. You know, with, I'm, I'm going to stand here because I'm a tough person. Well, that makes really great inspirational movies, but that's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're, we're called to be victorious. And uh, it's a battle in which there is help. So as Paul's writing in prison during the uh, 
to the Ephesians, he may have been guarded by a Praetorian guard. And if that guard is wearing some kind of armor, he would have been able to see that. Paul may have been looking at the guard as he rode or remembered it from some previous visit. I can't prove it, but it seems reasonable to me that if he's under some kind of guard watch, there may be a guard there dressed in some kind of a uniform that may have some armor on it. Can you picture that? That he's, he's in prison, but this he sees. And so easily it might have been relatable to say, look, these, this is what the characteristics are like that will clothe us in armor because a battle is coming. A battle is here, and a day of evil in which the battle will rage fierce is coming. Okay? We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But, but it seems reasonable that that's the case. I want to suggest to you this, that if you want to sum all this up, that preparation or putting on the armor is really putting on Christ. Come on, do you hear me, what I'm saying? That the power that we're going to fight in is not our own power. It's the power of Christ. He's going to help us to win the battle. So preparation is put in on Christ. Everything that's done is done in his power. Look at verse 10 once again here. It says, finally, this, this last thing that I need to mention before I close the letter, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Well, if we just take that real surface, we kind of understand what that means, that the strength that we're going to fight with is not our own strength. Aren't you glad for that? I was told you uh, many years ago about the time in kindergarten that some kid wanted to beat me up for my lunch money. And our, I was in kindergarten going to Rex Elementary School, if you wonder, and uh, some third grader or something um, who was bigger than me wanted to come take my lunch money. I remember there was a, some kind of a spruce tree that was there. And uh, there was another kid that came over from the middle school that was right next door and saw what was going down. And he said, you leave that kid alone. That kid was me. And I was so glad that somebody bigger than my bully came to my rescue. Aren't you glad for that? That's what happens in Christ is somebody bigger than your bully has come along and helped you to win. And so that's good news. So the preparation is put in on Christ. Everything's done in his power. When it says, be strong in the Lord, this is not just an inspirational thought. I don't know about you, but I find uh, greeting cards kind of sappy. Anybody else like that, that saccharine kind of stuff that's out there that it doesn't, it's, it doesn't really mean stuff. It's just flowery words. Anybody else find that a little bit distasteful? Like it upsets my stomach a little bit. Not, not really, but... But when I, when I come to words, I want words with substance. And if there's ever a place that's going to happen, it's going to be in the Bible. They're gonna, when it says be strong in the Lord, it's not flowery language to help us kind of get through the day because we've read beautiful poetry. This is, this is rubber meets the road, subst- uh, substantive kind of stuff here that, that we, can, we, can, we can base our lives upon. When it says be strong in the Lord... Paul's not just saying this would be a nice thought, getting some inspiration from this. He's saying there is real strength in which we can stand as we fight this spiritual battle. Uh, It's the only way to be really strong in the presence of the enemy is to live in union with Christ and to draw from his power. I'd like you to notice that when it says here his power uh, in his mighty power, it uses words uh, that aren't exactly the same as ability. It means capability to rule. So Christ has the capability to rule and to reign. And you know that he's already defeated the enemy, and he will continue to defeat the enemy till all his enemies have been made a footstool 
to his feet. That's what he's, that's what's going on, okay? So big picture stuff is that Christ wins, the enemy becomes his footstool, okay? That's good news. So as we think on about this here, we're to be strong in the fact that Christ has the capability to rule, and our being strong means that we are enabled in his strength and not our own. Paul doesn't tell us exactly how this works, like, uh, that we need to go and spend 30 minutes in our prayer closet. Obviously, that's a good idea, isn't it? Okay, But he doesn't tell us, plug in for 30 minutes, and you'll get your, you know, you'll see the meter begin to go up, and your strength goes up. be wonderful it happened that way, but that's not exactly what he says here. He doesn't tell us exactly how it works, except that we are to take up the full armor of God, which he provides. Okay, There's an interesting thing that happens here. Uh, in the the verbs, the first verb that's mentioned is an active verb, which means we are to actively take up. And then the following verbs that happen most of the way through this passage are are kind of middle verbs, which mean that somehow uh, we're doing it, but we're doing it with the resource that God has provided. Okay, take up the full armor of God. He's going to give us the victory. It's not all up to us. So He tells us take up the armor which God provides, and then we are to fight with the resources that he gives. And the fight is the fight of kingdoms in conflict, and it's decided by bringing the kingdom of God into the hearts of people, starting with letting God rule our own heart. You know, if we're out there proclaiming the kingdom of God has come, but we're not submitting to his reign, that's hypocritical. Do you hear what I'm saying on that? It's kind of what Uriah was talking about a little bit ago. I'm going to piggyback on his aggression here. All right. Yes. <laughs> that if we're not submitting to him the way that we should, the kingdom of God hasn't really come to our heart because the kingdom means the rule of God. Remember Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. How can that be? We're not talking geog- geography. We're talking about hearts and lives surrendered to him. And so if it's not, we're not really living within the kingdom. So in this, um, we're not completely passive. Scripture says to take up the armor of God that we've been given. And this is the qualities that are mentioned. And, and we can get way carried away. And what, why, do, why does it say belt? And I'm not sure that Paul always means to have us untangle everything specifically. But I think he's mentioning characteristics. And here's some visual representations of those. The, he says truth is a belt. We're to value truth. Do you know that in our day, truth is under attack? Not just not just gospel truth, but truth about what reality is. It's under attack. I mean, if you... I know I picked on this last week, but the whole gender thing seems to me a various, very obvious indication that we have disconnected from truth. Okay? And it's not just there. It's in a lot of places that we deny ourselves or we deny the real truth and we live within this fantasy world. And more and more we can do that because we have virtual worlds we can look at on screens. And we can be whatever we want to be. We don't have to live in this reality. We can live in an altered reality and have it our way. And tell us that's not crushing our ambitions to really live for God in this real world. Truth, he says, is a belt. Okay, It's holding all that stuff together if you want to uh, extend the metaphor here. Righteousness as a breastplate. And I think here what this is talking about is that righteousness, uh, we're to value it, the righteousness that's imputed, listen, which means that God, it's God-given righteousness. But you know that the Bible also talks about righteousness 
as a response. That he first declares us righteous, and then it's to be enacted upon beyond that. And so God gives us, uh, he imputes to us righteousness, but then we're to live it out. Okay, So righteousness is a breastplate. These things protect us. Christ is righteous. We put on Christ. We stand in his righteousness. But then in addition to standing as righteous, we have to begin to act righteous as well. That's the proper response in this. And then peace as shoes. Who understands this one easily? This one's difficult, but I think it means ready, readiness to bring peace through the gospel. So the shoes, you know, the feet take you where you go. Are you with me? Like there used to be this song back in the early, maybe the late 90s, uh, I want to be your hands, I want to be your feet, I'll go where you send me. You know that song? And so the feet are talking about where we go. How beautiful, uh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Okay? This is a readiness to preach the good news. Why peace? Because what we're proclaiming, and Paul's made this clear in a lot of places, is a gospel of peace. Peace between man and God. Peace on a horizontal level between humans. He broke down the middle wall of partition. Right? The Jew-Gentile divide is bigger than any divide in all of history. It was. And it says that Christ is our peace, making out of the two one new person. There's not Jew and Gentile anymore in Christ, not, not in Christ, okay? That's been broken down. He's made a new person altogether. There's a new category, Christian. Are you with me? That's good news, all right? And so there's peace that happens this way, peace that happens this way. And the preaching of the gospel promotes that kind of peace. We want to bring people into reconciled relationship with God. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. So gospel uh, reconciliation is, is shoes, okay? And then faith as a shield. And uh, you probably know this, but the way the Roman shield was set up was intentionally intended to put out fiery darts, okay? So that as you shot those things, they had certain layers that were built upon it that would help extinguish those darts as they came. And so you, you keep your shield of faith. One way to get through, the, one certain way to get through the attack is to keep trusting God through it. The moment you stop trusting God, you're in danger. You're in danger. Thank God he's faithful, and many times that extends, it extends beyond our faithfulness. But I'm suggesting to you, when we get out of faith and in unbelief, we start running different directions and making a real mess of things. So hanging on to God and realizing he's won the victory and then salvation as a helmet. This is the assurance that we have of our salvation and the transformed mind. We need to stand within that assurance and we need to continue to see the gospel wash over our minds, renewing our minds to the word of God. Okay? So those things are part of the armor that we put on. Having done all that we have, have done, the Bible tells us in this passage that we're to stand. If we're going to we're going to do all that preparation. You get dressed up for battle, not to sit around on your recliner, right? And by the way, the battle won't let you remain on your recliner. The battle will find you. So you don't get dressed up for battle to sit in a comfortable place. You, you take your stand. And I think this is a really interesting word because stand seems to me a passive thing, taking a stand, doesn't it, to you? Like, I'm standing here. It's almost like I'm not doing anything, except I am. I'm keeping holding my weight up. 
you're all sitting, so you don't know what this is like. But, but there's this thing called standing, and when you do it, you're fighting against gravity, right? <laughs> so there's an active thing that's happening here. And after a while, you get tired and you want to sit. So we do that during worship. It gets, uh, it's just too long, and we're worshiping, not that worship's too long. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm trying to make a point here, and that's this, is that standing is actually an active thing that we would expect when we hear active to think walking, moving in a direction, but standing is an active thing because you're, you're taking your stand against the enemy and holding your place in the line. I will not be moved, right? We're, we're standing here. We're, we're holding our position. We're not giving in to the attack. We're not, we're not giving up on what God has called us to do. We are resistant to the enemy. Resisting is an active sport, okay? And God's called us to that. And so what are we to stand from? We're to stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 11, it tells us that he's got some kind of schemes that he runs, plays. He's got a playbook that he runs, and he's smart about it. You know why he's smart about it? Because he has millennia of experience, and people haven't changed that much. So he's got a playbook and schemes. You have to stand against those schemes. If his scheme is to trip you up with temptation, resist that scheme, and he will not win. Stand against it. We're also to stand against spiritual forces. Verse 12, a little more vague, but it says stand against the, we struggle against spiritual forces. I don't know because the, the Bible doesn't really name them. It just principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and the heavenly realms. It doesn't name them. And I would encourage you not to get fascinated with trying to name them either. Because if that were intended to happen, the Bible would tell us more about that. The main thing it wants us to do, God wants us to do, is take our stand and to know that we don't have to know all the inner workings. We can obviously see his devices, the enemy's device. We don't have to know all the inner workings. We need to know what God wants us to do. We don't have to know all the enemies. If you're, um, I don't know if you remember Tennyson's poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. You guys ever read that in school? It's not ours to question why, it's ours to do and to die. That's kind of bleak. Is the 600 road into the valley, right? But um, I think in a certain sense, it captures the idea of what a soldier is supposed to do, that you're not to question all of the other stuff. You're to trust your commanding officer. And so we don't have to know all the stuff. We need to know who our commanding officer is and go where he tells us to go. And then we'll be victorious in the battle because he leads us in his triumphal procession. Amen. And then uh, against the day of evil, we're to stand. Uh, verse 13, taking your stand against him in the evil day. Now, you might think this is talking about a great tribulation or some kind of specific momentary, momentary day in history. But I have, a, I have a suspicion that it's probably not talking about a particular day for, like, all humanity. I think it's talking about a day when evil seems to prevail. And that's happened cyclically in history, where it seems the tide of evil has kind of taken over, and, and uh, maybe it's more evil now than it was a little bit before, and more evil than it may be later. I don't, I don't know exactly how this thing's going to play out, except I know God's going to win, and the Bible says, and in time, things are going to grow worse and worse. So when that evil day comes, you name it, whenever it is, 
you can stand. You don't have to give in. You don't have, he doesn't have to win because the evil day has come or because so much pressure has come on or a, deli- a delusion has been sent. Do you know, listen, a delusion will come in the latter days, and it says, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. That's a strong delusion. That's why we need to be armed for that kind of thing and prepared, trusting the, in- trusting the Lord, not the enemy, trusting the Lord to stand against the enemy. Second, is uh, that in this spiritual battle, there needs to be proclamation. This is going to sound a little weird, but hear me out in this. In chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about uh, taking uh, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? Did you hear that? Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I'm going to hurry along here, so don't get too, don't get uncomfortable uh, the word of God here is not the usual word that one would find uh, when it, it usually in Scripture talks about the word of God. Normally when it talks about the word of God, it uses uh, the Greek word logos. Okay, we get our word logo from it. And logos uh, typically means the content of the gospel. Okay? But here when it says the word of God, it uses the word rhema, okay? which means it, they're overlapping. So if you have a Venn diagram you could put up in your mind, there's a lot of overlap between those two words, rhema, lagos, okay? But if there is a little bit of a nudge in one direction or the other, usually the nudge in terms of rhema is a spoken or proclaimed word, okay? It's the word of God proclaimed, okay? So when Paul talks about the word of God proclaimed, he almost exclusively means the proclamation of the gospel, so when he's talking about the word of God here as a weapon, he's talking about preaching the gospel. That's the weapon, okay? So it's proclamation, the word of God. And I want to avoid a common misunderstanding. As I said, the word uh, rhema, obviously there's overlap, but Paul is talking about this being the preaching of the gospel. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Gordon Fee in his book, God's Empowering Presence, it's a great, it's a great book, and uh, he is very sympathetic to the Pentecostal charismatic cause, and he's a world-class Bible scholar. He's now gone on to be with the Lord. But he says that in urging them to take the sword of the Spirit and then identifying that sword with the Word of God, Paul is not identifying the sword with the book. Listen, hear me out. Okay, He's not identifying it with the book, but with the proclamation of Christ, which in our case is the book. Do you hear that? That because this is this is how we know the gospel. It's come down to us in these pages. So it's the same gospel as in the Bible. It's not some morphed gospel. It's not something different. It's not whatever words we want to say is the word of God. It's not. It's the message of Christ. And uh, I'm going to say this because I have something else to say that will counterbalance this in just a moment. But uh, this is important. He would not simply, he simply would not have understood the fascination with words that one finds among contemporary charismatics, as though what we speak against the devil is what will defeat him. Paul's aim is higher than that. God has something to say to be sure, but it is not some ad hoc word directed to Satan. Such an understanding surely endows Satan with far more authority in our present world than this text allows. Rather, the word of God, that is the spirit sword, is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the arena of darkness so that men and women might hear and be delivered from Satan's grasp. 
Come on, that's true. So this is not just us saying whatever we want to say. The rhema is the preaching of the gospel so that people can trust in what he has to say. Fee is saying that the, the winning the battle has to do with proclaiming the victory of Christ, which leads people to putting their faith in Christ and turning their backs on the world, the flesh, and the devil. Therein is victory. So, in, in case, and we're getting ready to go to our last point here, but in case you think that I just said that we shouldn't rebuke demons or that we can't use the Bible as our stand against temptation, I believe that we should do both those things, okay, With uh, when the occasion arises. And you can find that example through Scripture, but what I'm saying is I think here when it's talking about our battle against the enemy, Paul's battle in particular, and we, we read about this in just a moment, uh, that... His, ba- his battle in particular is the proclaiming of the gospel to those who've not heard. And you can hear when it happens, idols falling. There's a great book by Larry Hurtado called The Destroyer of the Gods. And it talks about how the preaching of the gospel changed the, Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman culture. That nobody worships those gods seriously anymore. And the reason is because Christ was far superior to them all. Larry Hurtado the destroyer of the gods, if you're interested. Um, so I, I believe we should do both those things, but I think Paul here has in mind the preaching of the gospel, and there's a similar passage in 2 Corinthians 10 when it talks about taking down strongholds, and I think it's the preaching of the gospel that does that as well. Finally, prayer. Look at verses 18 through 20. Prayer is part of our spiritual armory here, if you didn't know that. Surely we know that, but so many times we don't treat it like it's that important. Listen what it says here, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also, Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. His concern in this passage is the proclaiming of the gospel. And Paul himself, he said in another place, when I came to you, I came to you in much fear and trembling. So I get this picture of this mighty, you know, bull in a china closet going into a situation. And the way you hear Paul describe himself and others describe him in 2 Corinthians, some people perceived him as kind of weak. But I'm telling you, he's a powerhouse through history. There's a guy named Tom Holland, not the actor, the other, another guy, a historian, uh, who wrote a book called Millennium. And in that book, he describes how Christianity has flipped the world upside down. And many of the things that we take for granted today in terms of civil liberties, in terms of equality between the genders, is a result of the preaching of Christianity. And I'm telling you, it changed the world. And most of the secular world doesn't want to give credit to where credit's due the preaching of the gospel. And of course, they want to take it and extend it to whole new vistas that are beyond the reach that they should. But prayer is really important to this whole process. And Paul says, pray for me. This is talking about intercession. Notice it says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. When you pray for somebody else, we have a word for that. If you go to the Christian bookstore and you look for intercession, you're probably going to get a super long definition. I'm going to give you an easy one. Intercession is praying for other people. 
I know that takes the magic out of it. There is never magic. This is what we're called to do, okay, to pray for other people. And he calls us to intercede for others, for people other than ourselves. And if we're honest, I bet that we find that sometimes we're not excited about praying the way that we should be, if we're, ex- if we're honest. Especially in today's world of distractions, we can be entertained until we die, if we wanted to be. But I was thinking about this earlier. Just let me take one moment to say this. We're not to compartmentalize life in terms of where God exists. He exists in all parts of our lives. Okay? When we're at church, when we're at home, when we're at work, when we're out in the marketplace doing whatever in public, God's there with us. But do you know that different parts of life have different purposes? And so when you're at home and you've had a long day and you want to turn on the television and you're not watching something that's spiritually destructive to you, yeah, fine. Maybe that purpose is to unwind and have some leisure. Uh, when you go to work, your purpose is not that that same thing. You're doing something with a specific purpose in mind, right? And when you come to church, you're doing something with a specific. And so church is not going to be entertaining, and you all know that by now. But it's not always going to be entertaining because we have segments of our life that have different purposes. And so um, I forget why I was saying that. I know it will come back to me in just a moment. Well, I, I, it'll probably come back in just a moment. So when it, com- when it comes to prayer, okay, we may not think that that's as enjoyable as, I don't know, watching our television show or if you want to be in your garden or playing a video game if, you know, if you like to do that. Um, but not every part of life is to be that kind of thing. Part of life is to be set aside for prayer. In fact, I would suggest to you our prayer life should overlap all those things. Okay, we pray, we pray without ceasing. We pray on all occasions, as it mentions here, all occasions. That's where I was going, so I picked up that point, all right? Uh, so don't deduct me in your surveys, all right? Pray on all occasions. Pray with all kinds of prayer and uh, be always praying. Uh, the ESV says all perseverance and all saints. If you looked at the Greek of this, you would see that it's the same word that stands behind all of these. You can kind of see it in English, too that it's all, 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 all occasions, all prayer, all perseverance, all saints. Paul is using this device to get us to know that prayer is the appropriate response in all situations. And he wants us to be intercessors, pray for all saints. Okay, so do you know that we're to pray for one another? If And not just like when the Holy Spirit nudges you and says, pray for this person, and you get the visual picture before your face, and you know to pray for them, do it then. But... I think it's probably appropriate for us as Christians, and it will benefit us as a church if we pray for one another all the time. Doesn't that sound ridiculous to have to say out loud? Like, we should know that, but it's true. We should pray for each other. And I bet as we pray for one another, we're going to see this church become what God wants us to be in a bigger way. I woke up this morning, and I had the feeling, I had the sense that this is a moment where God is trying us to see the character of who we are as a church. Okay, I don't know what what that's going to look like or what that means, but the true character that we have is going to be revealed. And so if we're not praying and the evil day comes, we're going to be like sheep scattered. Okay, But if we are praying and we're standing in God's armor and we're proclaiming the gospel, 
uh, there can be a different outcome because he is victorious. Christ is one who prays. He intercedes for us, right? As our high priest, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Isaiah 53 says in verse 12 that he doesn't just wait till we're saved to pray for us, but he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for transgressors. When he was on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing in this That's interceding for people that don't deserve it. And sometimes we can sit back and be super critical about people on the other side of the political aisle or people who have a different view of morality than we do, and we don't stop to pray for them. The heart of Jesus is to pray for them, and he calls us to this very thing that uh, when uh, people persecute us or say all manner of evil against us, we're to pray for them, Matthew 5, 44, And uh, who knows that it might insulate us against that kind of attack so that we can show them love anyway. God wants us to have that kind of heart. And I I love how there's that one verse in Luke 22 where Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Intercession, that's what he did. So... I want to talk finally here about something that you might find a little controversial. Uh, And I'm bringing that up intentionally because I want you to think about this. And I want to tell you where I stand on this issue and uh, for you to seriously consider it. Okay? He says praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. When uh, the Bible uses certain phrases, there's kind of a... um, an understanding of what those things meant throughout the Bible when they're repeated. Are you with me? Okay, so righteousness of God, we kind of have an idea of it. When it says righteousness of God here, it usually means the same thing throughout or something very similar to it. And so when you hear praying in the Spirit, you don't see that very often. But you do see it here. What does it mean by praying in the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, um, in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, and 15, Paul tells us what uh, gives us a clear picture of what praying in the Spirit means. Listen, this is verse 14. It says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Let's stop here for a moment because I think we tend to pigeonhole the category of tongues as one thing and not another. So we think of it in terms of Acts 2 where it was used for proclamation. Okay? Are you with me? Like they all spoke the wonders of God in all these tongues. Okay? So we, we hear of that. But then we come to 1 Corinthians, and Paul is saying uh, that when I pray in a tongue, he says, I pray, uh, I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying, but my spirit prays. So what do I do? Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Shall I, what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. And actually, in the Greek, it's not with my spirit. It just says, I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with understanding. Okay? I will sing with my spirit. And this ought to kind of blow some cobwebs off here. And I will sing with my understanding. There's a place for singing in tongues, if this is what Paul means here in Scripture. Okay? So I'm going to suggest to you, this is my thinking on this, that praying in the Spirit is not exclusively, but at least includes praying in tongues. Okay? 
Okay, so listen, then there's another one in Romans chapter 8. You might not expect this because Paul's all wrapped up in salvation theology there. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. We don't know the words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. If I understand this right, this is saying to us that when the Spirit prays through us in this unknown tongue, that it's actually the Spirit that's praying the perfect will of God. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you ever caught yourself praying and you prayed something that was really kind of dumb? You've been like, why was I praying that? Or something that was unscriptural that you realized later, like, I think of the Psalms, Lord, strike out the teeth of the ungodly, okay? Uh, We're not praying exactly that kind of prayer now. You may feel that way, and if you are praying that, maybe God's purging and working through some stuff in you, but but when you, some, when we pray in our, with our mind, there's a limitation that's there, but when the Spirit prays and we surrender to Him, then the Spirit prays through us, and I, I know what you might think here is the Bible says not all speak with tongues. And I'll grant you that point. But when it says all will not speak in tongues, not all will prophesy, Paul's talking in the context of the local church. And so when we come together is the context that he's talking about there. When you come together in a meeting, not everybody speaks in tongues. Now, that might be a huge hang-up for you, um, but I, but I want to mention to you that you already have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit who has all the gifts dwells in you. And that at any time, according to his desire, he could use us in any one of the gifts. Are you with me? We have to be surrendered to him. And so how all of this plays out might have a problem with Pentecostal theology. Sometimes I have a problem with it. Um, But one of the things that we have to really be careful of here is reading our traditions back into the text. And I want to do that, and I'll tell you there are plenty of complaints that I have against the way uh, the, the way that I was taught growing up with some things. And I think we as Pentecostals, Charismatics, have been guilty as, as anyone in adding our mythology on top of the Bible and, and going beyond Scripture. And that's unfortunate, and it's left us with a credibility gap. And I think the challenge of reading the Bible is not to say, I want to understand this in light of my experience, but, Lord, I want to understand what you're saying here and I want my experience to measure up to what you've said. Come on, are you with me? So if we really trust God, are we open to that? You might be like, that tongues thing is weird. I'm going to tell you, it is, it is weird, and we don't understand it. But we cannot deny that it's of God because it's in Scripture. There's a bunch of people running around today saying, well, that's not for today because all of these things have ceased or will cease when the perfect comes, and they say the perfect is Scripture. Well, that's not what Paul has in mind there in 1 Corinthians 13. The perfect is the coming of Christ, that that's when the the gifts will cease. And so you have a bunch of people running around saying that speaking in tongues is demonic. Be careful. Be careful about that. Because we don't want to call anything that's truly of God demonic. I would not have anyone feel today that uh, there are two classes of Christians. Those who 
have prayed in tongues and those who haven't. I don't think that way. Um, I just think we should ask ourselves what's real and what does God want for us, and let's forget about the other stuff. And let's clear the deck a little and say to the Lord, what is there still for me in my experience of you? Surely there's more. And if it's praying in this way, I want to be open to that. When I came out of Bible college, I went to a Pentecostal Bible college, and um, the name that shall not be named this morning. Uh, it's actually been absorbed into Janie's College, which is a liberal arts school, unfortunately. <laughs> but I came out wanting to be a defender of my Pentecostal tra- tradition. Because we're starting to move away, the Pentecostal movement's starting to move away in some areas from all of that. But I feel like that's the wrong focus. The right focus for a pastor is to want the people that he shepherds to experience all of God that they can. That's the right focus. It's not to be a defender of traditions. Let's stand on the Bible. Sometimes traditions get bloated and there's a lot of glut there. And sometimes we need to shed them. That's what the Reformation was about. And uh, return to Scripture and ask again, what is the Bible saying? And so... Um, I would just ask us to clear the deck in all of this and ask, Lord, what is it that you want from me? See, this passage that we just read this morning is not about Satan. It's about the victory of God in the lives of believers in the kingdom of God. It's not about bringing down the devil by issuing colossal rebukes. It's about bringing people into obedience to Christ by the preaching of the gospel so that they can be obedient to the king of kings. And it's not even about being Pentecostal in experience. It's about seeing the mystery of the gospel being made known. And so one of the things that God may use us in, if we're open to it, and some people have not even been open to it, and he's chosen sovereignly to bypass. I can't explain all of that. But I can tell you stories of people that were really resistant, and God gave them a little dose of that gift. And it freaked them out a little bit. But he can do that. But it's so much better when we just come before him and say, Lord, I want to be empowered by you. What if we just cleared the deck and said, forget the Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal stuff. Holy Spirit, I need your power. What if we just said that? I need your power. I need your power to stand. I need your power to pray. And I need your power to proclaim. What if we just said that and said, Lord, and you do with that what you will. But I'm completely open to what you would have me do. Okay. If you want to use me in the gifts of healing on one occasion, by the way, that's double plural, gifts of healings, which means that God doesn't just use us in one sort of healing, but he may use us in a lot of different healings. And uh, he may want to use us in prophecy, and we might be like, I've never done that before. Your gift is not your gift. It's God's gift. So we're not trapped in. So... This, this morning, I thought what we'd do, I, I went longer than I'd hoped to. But I'd like for you to come to the altar if today you would say, I need power to stand. I need power to pray. I need power to proclaim. You know, Paul said himself, the powerhouse of the New Testament, right? After Jesus. Pray for me that I may make known fearlessly the mystery of the gospel. We need to make known fearlessly the mystery of the gospel, too. We need his power to do it.
We need his help to do it. So if we're saying yes to that, I'm not trying to make you do something weird. I'm just asking you today, how are we going to face the spiritual battle in our own power or the power that God gives? And are we open to what he has for us? Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention this morning. All right. Okay. When the music starts, if you'd like to come, just come. And uh, you can kneel. If you'd like prayer, if you'll remain standing, somebody will come pray with you. If you kneel, that means you want to spend a few moments with the Lord alone. Okay. Father, we just pray right now that you would uh, touch our hearts in the way that you desire to. Lord, help us as we think through these things this morning to, to ask ourselves sincerely, are we walking in the power of the Lord for this battle that we face? And uh, we, we just declare that we need you. We need you more. We need you now. We need you this week. We need you in our homes. We need you at our jobs. We need you when we're in public. We need you in those quiet moments. We're by ourselves. We just we need you, Lord. And we need your power to to be all that you would have us to be in this evil day. Help us in your name. One thing I don't want us to go away with is that we're victims in some way. In this battle, we're not victims. We're we're God's gentle warriors. Right, gentle warriors going forth, taking tough stands, but loving people like Jesus. And we need his power to do it. We need his power to make a difference. There's strength that's stronger than strength in this world, and it comes from God. And uh, he will rule and reign. The kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he'll rule forever and ever. That's how the book ends. And so we know in the meantime, let's walk with him and be empowered by him. Father, thank you, Lord, for your strength. We pray that you help us to be clothed with Christ and full of the Holy Spirit. We pray as we try to walk this walk of obedience and and live with you in victory. And we pray, God, that you make a difference in our families, in our homes, in our community for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.